Good, ev- good evening, everyone. Um, today's Bible reading is from Matthew 28, verses 1 to 20. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 20. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you came, that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you see, there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some god, some of the gods went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Well, it will be a great help to me if you can keep your Bibles open at Matthew 28. We're going to look at that chapter, Matthew 28, verse 1 to 20. And uh, do keep your Bibles open at, uh, at that chapter. My name is Martin. I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch Midrand. And uh, if you've been at any of our services this weekend, you will know that I preached on Friday and I preached this morning and I'm preaching this evening. And uh, you may be wondering how that happened. I think what happened is that David and Royden and Ruffer were talking and they were saying, you know, Martin is so old. I think he was there. And uh, let's ask him as an eyewitness to come and tell us about the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, I'm going to ask you to stand as I pray and as we come to God's word. Let's stand and let's let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this weekend where once again we can remember the death and the resurrection of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you came because you loved us. We thank you that you came because you came to rescue us. And we thank you that we know it's true 
because of the resurrection of Christ. Lord, as we study your word, will you challenge us, will you speak to us, and will you draw us to yourself? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I don't need to tell you that we live in in a broken world. We live in a distorted world. We only have to switch on our TV. I only have to look at social media. We see, we see the damage of the flood in KZN. We see the cars, the roads, the bridges, the homes washed away. Many, many people who have loved, lost loved ones. We look at uh, Ethiopia and the war in Ethiopia, the war in Yemen, the war in the Ukraine. We see a broken world. We only have to look into the eyes of someone who has cancer who has HIV AIDS. We only have to look at someone who suffered a broken home or a broken marriage or a dysfunctional family. And there are times that all of us say, where is God? God is so powerful. If God is a God of love, why doesn't he do something? Have you ever thought that? I have a book in my study And the title is, If I Were God, I Would End All the Pain. Sometimes say that, if I were God, I would end all the pain. Now at Easter, we remember both the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And both both those events and both those doctrines are enormously important for us personally. We want to have a look at this passage And we want to look at the cross and resurrection of Christ and see how that affects us and our lives. We remember at the cross that uh, two things that we can take note of. The first is that at the cross, as we heard that that gentleman speaking on uh, on that video clip, Christ died in our place. He died on our behalf. So we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ that he took the punishment, he took the wrath that we deserve. You remember when he was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an extraordinary cry. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were united. Three persons, one God for all eternity. And then he's on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, at that very moment, God took all the garbage, all the sin, all the evil, all the brokenness of this world, all the sin and evil of your life and my life, and placed it upon Christ. God the Father turned his back on his son. First time in all eternity. And he poured his wrath and his judgment on Christ. The wrath and judgment that we deserve, Christ took that upon himself. So we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and that is at the heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus isn't just a wonderful example of love or sacrifice. He's not just a wonderful example of how we ought to live and how we ought to treat other people. No, he came to die, and he came to die in our place. The second thing that we, that we learn from the cross is that God shared in our world of suffering and pain. So Christ not only died for us, Christ not only suffered for us, but he suffered with us. 
It's important that we understand that, that when we cry to God, when we call to God, when we, when we are, in, are in anguish or in grief or in depression or in loneliness and we call upon God, we call upon someone who understands. He was here. He lived in this broken world. God doesn't answer all our questions. We do sometimes ask why. You sometimes struggle with why there's brokenness and pain and suffering in our lives and the lives of others. But we can never say that God does not understand. We can never say that. We can never say that he doesn't care, that he doesn't know what it's like living in this broken world. We can never say that. He was here. He lived in this broken world. For 30 years, he lived amongst broken, sinful people like you and me. He knows what it's like. When there's loneliness, when there's grief, when there's death. John Stott put it like this. It's quite a long quote, but it's a brilliant quote. Because it tells us how Jesus not only suffered for us, but Jesus suffers with us. John Stott writes and he says, I could never never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. Isn't that brilliant? That's our God. Our God understands. He knows what it's like to live in this broken, dysfunctional, shattered, grieving, weeping world. We can never say he doesn't understand. But we not only look at the cross of Christ and the death of Christ, we also look at the resurrection of Christ. Because at the resurrection, we realize that God has a plan. God has a plan to rescue us from this broken world. God has a plan to put right what is wrong. God has a plan. He has a, he has a, he has a plan to deal and confront with the root cause of our human misery and pain. And the root cause is sin Death and Satan. Those are the root causes of the brokenness of this world. Death, sin, and Satan. And at the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we have a clear sign, we have a clear indication that God has acted. It's not the final step. The final step will come when Christ returns. But he's given us a heads up, a very strong heads up. I have a plan. I've come to defeat sin. I've come to defeat Satan. I've come to defeat death. And he affirms that and he states that in his resurrection when he rises from the dead. 
So on Friday, we looked at the cross. On Sunday, we look at the resurrection of Christ, God's plan to rescue us from this broken world. Let's have a look here at Matthew 28. I want us to have a look at three things, the facts of the resurrection, just briefly. Secondly, the meaning of the resurrection. And then lastly, we look at the implications of the resurrection as we work through this passage. First of all, let's have a look at the facts of the resurrection. Now, what is interesting is that Matthew does not spend as much time as the other gospel authors do. He only gives us a few clues. So in Luke's gospel, Luke spends 53 verses looking at the facts of the resurrection. John uses 56 verses. Someone counted them, by the way. I didn't. Matthew only spends a few verses looking at the facts, but let's have a look at them. Notice in verse 2, we have the supernatural activity. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. If you've been influenced by the Western materialistic secular worldview, you will have been told that there is no such thing as the supernatural, as heaven and hell, as God and Satan. It is a lie. It is a lie. We do not live in a closed universe. We live in an open universe. There's a real God. There's a real Satan. There are real angels. There are real evil spirits. There's a real heaven and there's a real hell. We live in an open universe, not a closed universe. Verse 3, we have an explanation, not just supernatural activity, but the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, you have an empty tomb. Not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And verse 9, you have the risen Christ. Supernatural, a miracle. But it's real, it's historical. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So the facts are very clear. They're brief. They're to the point. Let me just draw out two, two, um, two points from the facts. The first, which is quite striking, and I mentioned it this morning, the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, notice chapter 28, verse 1 and 2, were women. It was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who went to see the tomb. They were the first witnesses. Now, we may read that and not make much of that. But in terms of the Jewish culture at the time, this would have been a very striking record of what had happened. You see, in Jewish culture at that time, it was a very patriarchal culture. And the testimony, the witnesses of women, would not be accepted in a court of law. That's how bad it was. That's how terrible it was. So if Matthew was making up the story, if it was a myth, if it was fiction, if he was trying to prove his argument, he wouldn't have made women as the first witnesses because in their culture, women wouldn't have any credibility. So what is Matthew doing? He's only telling us what happened. 
God affirms the value of woman, the dignity of woman, the importance of woman, as important as the testimony of men. They were the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ. The second thing we need to know is that in the early church, especially the first 300 years of the church, but soon after the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, there was great persecution of the Christian church. Great persecution by Emperor Nero around about 66, 67, 65 AD. Hundreds, thousands of Christians lost their lives. Hundreds and thousands of Christians would not deny Christ. And one of the reasons is because they had seen the resurrected Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were many witnesses. There was a woman there were the disciples, the eleven. In fact, there was Peter, there was James, there was Paul himself. And then, and then Paul tells us there were 500 men at the same time who saw the risen Christ. Imagine that. They knew that he had died. They knew that he had been crucified on a cross. When you get crucified, no one comes out alive after a crucifixion. No one. And then he appears to them in his body, in his flesh. It's physical. Notice there verse, verse, um, verse 9 that um, Jesus' body was a real body. She clasped his feet. Notice in verse 18, Jesus speaks. It's a physical body. It's a physical resurrection. Now, some have argued that there wasn't really a resurrection. That the resurrection that Matthew is talking about is, an, is a spiritual resurrection. That finally he came to understand why Jesus came. That is not what the text is saying. It was a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. There were countless men and women who saw him. They died for that fact. Now think about it. It was the most revolutionary fact in their lives. In fact, all the gospel authors spend significant time telling us about his death and resurrection because this was the biggest event that you could ever think about. This changes everything. This changes life. This changes death. Let me tell you that, so I've been in the ministry about 40 years I was only 10 years old when I started. And I've been to hundreds and hundreds of funerals. There's a big difference between white funerals and black funerals. You know that. So a white funeral takes about 45 minutes. And uh, you're in and you're out. And you have tea and that's it. A black funeral takes the whole week. Right? There's a service every night at the home. The widow, if it's a widow, she's on the mattress with a candle. and You all go in and you, someone preaches, you sing, and then afterwards you have funeral scones. I love funeral scones. <laughs> and then Friday they bring the body to the house. The Friday evening they have a service. They may have a night vigil. The next morning the minister goes to the church to collect the coffin. You go to the church and you're there for three hours, not 45 minutes. Okay? And then you go to the cemetery. And then you, uh, you all stand there and, and uh, everyone's singing 
even when it's raining, you're singing, and uh, then the body is lowered. And then the men come with the shovels, these eight or ten or twelve shovels, and they fill in the coffin. It takes 20, 30 minutes. And thankfully, I'm a minister because the umfundis doesn't have to fill in the... Fill in the um, and then they, it takes 30, 20, 30 minutes, and then there's a mound of soil over it. And then they put the flowers on top. Yes? And then you go to the family's home for a big lunch. Imagine that the funeral was on the Saturday. You saw the body go down. You saw all the sand going in, the soil going in. You saw the mound and you saw the flowers on top. You went to have it Saturday. Monday evening, you with you with your you with your flatmate or you with your your husband watching TV. The person who was buried. Knocks on the door. Yo, yo, yo. You will not believe it. You saw it. Standing at the door. Alive. That is what changed their lives. It's alive. Everything he said must be true. He is the truth and the way and the life. He is the only one to the Father. How do I know that? Because on Saturday we buried him. He was dead. He was properly dead. There's no way you can get out of that hole and walk into my lounge on a Monday night when I'm watching TV. He's alive. Changes everything. He is what he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And if you believe in me, you will live. It's true. We buried him on Saturday and on Monday evening he walked in. Facts of the resurrection. It is true whether you believe it or not. So the truthfulness of the Christian faith is not based upon your belief. It's not based upon your feelings, your emotions. It's based upon objective objective fact. It happened whether you believe in it or not. It's the truthfulness of the Christian faith. Facts of the resurrection. It changes everything. All right, let's have a look at the meaning of the resurrection. There's one verse, verse 18. So we have the facts, we have the meaning. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now for, now for Matthew, it's almost obvious because that has been a theme throughout his gospel, 28 chapters. The theme of the Matthew's gospel is that Jesus has authority. Matthew chapter 1, the long-awaited king has been born of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the son of David. 
Matthew chapter 2, the wise men realize that he is the long-awaited king, so they bow down and worship. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist announces that Christ is the long-awaited king. Repent. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tests Jesus, and Jesus shows himself to have authority over Satan, the long-awaited king. Matthew chapter 5 to 7, Jesus teaches as the long-awaited king. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus shows his authority over the natural world by calming a storm. He shows his authority over the supernatural world by casting out the demons from a man. He shows his authority over the natural world by healing the sick. You get the point. It's the theme throughout Matthew's gospel. The long-awaited king has come. Now here in chapter 28, that long-awaited king has conquered death. He has paid the price for sin. He has defeated Satan. And he says, having conquered sin, having conquered Satan, having conquered death, he says all authority is given on heaven, in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, the meaning of the resurrection is not primarily that we are important to God, though we are. The meaning of the resurrection is not primarily that there's life after death, though there is. The meaning of the resurrection is not primarily that we can go to Jesus with all of our needs, though we can. No, the primary meaning of the resurrection is that God has given Jesus all authority over heaven and earth. The ultimate truth, the ultimate authority is not Mr. Putin, not President Biden, it's not Mr. Ramaphosa. The ultimate truth is not karma. Karma says if you live a good life now, in the next life, you will experience good things. No, that is not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is not your ancestors. The ultimate truth is not fate or luck or chance. Henry Ford, who manufactured the first motor cars, he said, excuse my language, he said, history is one damn thing after the other. That is not true. The ultimate truth in the universe is that Christ, the risen Christ, the Christ who suffered on the cross, has all authority in heaven and earth. That means that his authority is unrestricted, it's unqualified, it's unending, it is universal. It doesn't matter what your religion is or what your creed is. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. He is Lord over all heaven and earth. He has authority over all people, over all places, at all times, from all eternity. He has authority over your life and my life, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are sick or healthy, whether you are married or unmarried, whether you have children or you don't have children. He has authority. He has authority over the past, over the present, over the future. You and I worry about the future. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this doesn't happen? Lie awake at night. No, Christ has authority. He has authority over death. 
For goodness sake, if he has authority over death, he can have authority over your life and my life. It means we can entrust our lives to him, our future to him, whether you get married or not, whether you have children or not, whether you will have fame or not, whether you will have riches or not. You can entrust your future to God. He has all authority. He has proved it in the resurrection. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 139, verse 16. It says, All the days ordained for you were written in my book before the first began. So what does that mean? That means that God knows the date of my birth and God knows the date of my death. He hasn't told me. God knows the date. He knows exactly the date. He knows the time, the moment. So my dear friends, I will not ultimately die of cancer or a bullet or a car crash. I may die of those things, but that will not be the ultimate cause. That will be the secondary cause. The primary cause will be, Martin, it's time to come home. Martin, you need to give Gene a break. <laughs> Martin, you need to give Christchurch Midrand a break. Those will be the secondary causes of my death. Maybe cancer, maybe a car crash, it may be a bullet. We don't know. But what I do know is that that is the secondary cause. I will, not, I will not be struck by a bullet and I arrive at heaven's gate and God says, my goodness me, Martin, what are you doing here? We weren't expecting you. The bedrooms haven't been, we haven't made the beds, there's no food in the pantry and the bathroom's a mess. What are you doing here? He's not going to say that. No, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before the first began. When I arrive there, and it may be a bullet, answer. Say, Martin, welcome home. Yo, we've been looking forward to this day. So lovely to have you home. He has authority in life and death. We don't have to fear these things because we belong to him. One of our problems is that we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. Let me explain that. That's one of our great problems in life. We have this, all of us have this internal dialogue, or is it just me? We all have this internal dialogue. And we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. So we allow anger or bitterness or hatred to go round and round in your mind. Instead of telling yourself, Jesus is Lord, he will see that justice is done. You don't have to live with your anger, with your bitterness, this poison going round in your head. You can put it in God's hands. He will see that justice is done. Or perhaps you allow your fears and your doubts about the future your career, your marriage, your children, going round and round in your head. You wake up in the middle of the night and you worry about these things and you're listening to yourself. You need to talk to yourself and say, Mod, stop it, stop it. Jesus is Lord. He has authority over life and death. Stop it, cut it out. We allow our minds to be tempted 
We allow our minds to be, to be, to be seeking after other gods or idols, which we know will not satisfy our souls. We need to tell them to get lost. We need to tell the devil to go to hell. It's the only one you can tell to, to go to hell. I belong to Jesus. He has conquered sin. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered death. You see the meaning of the cross? Christ is king. The long-awaited king has arrived, and he has conquered our great enemies. Lastly, will you notice the implications of the resurrection? Let me mention... Two or three. Number one, they worshipped him. Notice there verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to, to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Paid, uh, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubt it. So in the ancient world, worship was when you fell onto your knees, you fell on the ground, perhaps you kissed the ground before some mighty ruler. Here is King Jesus. And the proper response is to worship him, to bow before him. But let me say a few things about worship, because we can think of worship merely on a Sunday when we gather together, when we sing, when we pray. But actually, the Bible uses the word worship in a much broader way. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul tells us that uh, we must present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship isn't just what we do when we come to church and we pray. And it's good that we do that. It's good that we sing and our hearts are lifted and our minds are lifted and we praise God and we thank God and we rejoice. And that is a wonderful thing. But worship is 24-7. Offer your bodies. He doesn't say offer your spirits, offer your souls. He says, no, offer your bodies, your whole life. Not as a dead sacrifice, no, as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. So what are the implications of the resurrection? If Jesus is king, if Jesus is Lord, it means we commit ourselves to worship him 24-7. He's concerned about what you do in the classroom. He's concerned about what you do in the boardroom. He's concerned about what you do in the bedroom. It's all of life. We want to serve him. We want to love him. We want to please him. That is our response to King Jesus. He's raised from the dead. He appears in your lounge on Monday evening. It changes everything. It means we live for him. We don't live for ourselves. My wife and I, we, after supper, we normally... Uh, read the Bible, passage from the Bible, and then we pray. And uh, one of the things we pray about quite often, we think about this. 
And we say, isn't it wonderful that God has saved us, not just from our sin, not just from the wrath of God. And we are so thankful about that. But he has saved us from just living for ourselves. Have you ever thought how, how pathetic that is? Most people in our world just live for themselves. My little world, my little family, my little marriage, my little career, my little happiness. Is that all that you live for? Is that all? Your little world, your little happiness? So we thank God and we say, Lord, thank you for, from, thank you for saving us from just living for ourselves. Which is so, it's so pathetic. Is that the purpose of your life? No, he saved us that we can live for him. We don't do that perfectly. But that is the longing of our hearts because of what he's done for us on the cross and in the resurrection. We want to live for him in every part of our lives. Second implication is that we suffer for him. Now, we don't have time, but if you have a look at verse 11 to 15, there's corruption. Corruption is not new, my dear friends. It didn't start with Jacob Zuma. Corruption didn't start with the part that government. No, it started long before then. It actually started in Genesis chapter 3. But here they are maligning, misrepresenting Jesus. And throughout Matthew's gospel, you find Jesus suffering. Throughout the book of Acts, the early church, you find God's people suffering. One of the implications of being a Christian is not just to worship him and live for him 24-7, but to suffer for him. It's ironic that so many churches tell us that if you come to Jesus, you will have no more problems. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says come to Jesus and your greatest problem will be solved. You will not face the judgment of God or hell. But do not think that you will have no suffering. Part of the territory of being a disciple of Christ is suffering for him. And then lastly, notice, we are to tell others about him. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So one of our duties, one of our privileges through our lives and through our lips is to share this great news of what Christ has done for us on the cross, what Christ has done for us in the resurrection. Won't you join me to come and find this new hope, this new life found in Christ? Now, the great question this evening is whether you have bowed the knee to him. We see here in chapter 28, numerous people worshiping, bowing before him, King Jesus. The question is, have you bowed the knee? Wouldn't this Easter be a wonderful Easter if you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Said, oh Lord, will you cleanse me? Will you wash me? Will you make me your child? And will you help me to live for you? That's what it is when you become a Christian. You call upon him for mercy. So let's do that as we pray. Let's bow in prayer.
perhaps you've been going to church all your life. Perhaps you've been going to Easter conventions all your life, but you've never bowed the knee to King Jesus. You've never crossed the line or taken the step. You've never realized that it's a gift. It's grace. If you want to get right with God, you can talk to him tonight. And you talk to him in prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer that you may want to echo in your mind. And pray it for yourself. So that you can get right with King Jesus today. Here's the prayer. You just echo these words quietly in the back of your head. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all. But I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? And Father, we thank you that when we call upon you with all our questions and doubts and all our sin and call on you for mercy that you hear and you answer. Will you work amongst us tonight? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.